This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. Hello, and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. Today's episode features an interview with Emily Kramer, Vice President of Marketing at Carta. Emily has also built and led marketing teams at Asana, Ticketfly, and Astro, a startup that was acquired by Slack. She attended Tufts University and Harvard Business School. On this episode, Emily talks about equity and how to make sure you're compensated fairly at a startup, how she puts together a marketing team, and her best tips for growth marketing. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And to my right, on the, like, 400th floor of a, uh, of a building in downtown San Francisco and Carta HQ. Lauren Vaccarello, what's going on? Not much. I'm so excited for another episode of Marketing Trends. Me too. I'm extremely excited because we have in this, in our borderline penthouse suite, looking uh, in the cloud, truly, Emily Kramer. Hey, how's it going? We're excited to talk about all things marketing, driving startup growth, a really cool project that you've put together about how to determine equality and equity and how those two things work together. But first, how did you get in marketing? Yeah, I uh, stumbled upon a job at an ad agency when I was 22 and had just moved to San Francisco on a whim without a job. It was a different time uh, <laughs> in San Francisco where you could do that. So I got this job in an ad agency. I kind of knew I wanted to be in marketing, but wasn't really sure why. I'd like worked at marketing at a record label and a radio station in college when I was way cooler than I am now. <laughs> uh, and got a job doing media planning. So buying and optimizing ads on various publications, both online and also in print. And I was working on Microsoft Zune, which was their iPod competitor, which is kind of funny. But That is uh, funny. I was like, oh, this is related to music. It's the same as working at a record label. It wasn't. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, did, I did that for a while, worked at the ad agency, kind of bounced around to a couple of agencies. And then I went to business school. And coming out of that, I knew that I wanted to work at startups and be in-house, as us former agency people call it when you go to a company. So I knew I wanted to be in-house and working at a tech company in marketing. And at that point, it was just kind of inevitable to stay in marketing. I've always been that kind of creative and analytical mix. So kind of made sense for me, even if it wasn't that intentional when I started. So if that's moving in-house, then is the agency's side truly outhouse? It's going to the outhouse, yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Good joke. Um, I try. <laughs> what, uh, what record label did you work for? It was a really small one. It was an independent label. It was called Artemis. And the founder of that label, I believe, I, I'm pretty sure is now the, the founder of Glassnote, which does a lot of like indie stuff still. It didn't have any I'm really that cool on it at the time, but I was trying to get a job at a record label. So you take what you can get. My friend owns a record label and it's wild just how the intern use and all that sort of stuff yes. at the big at the big ones. It's freaking crazy. Yes. So for our listeners who might not be familiar, tell us a little bit about Carta and, and kind of the, the shape of the marketing work. Yeah, so Carta is nothing like a record label. <laughs> um, so at Carta, we help companies, VCs, and employees of those companies manage equity. So many people that have worked at startups have gotten issued options and potentially accepted them or exercised your options on Carta. So you're probably familiar with that side. Before companies, we help them manage equity compensation and things that help them stay compliant. And then for VCs, we help them manage their portfolio and, and keep track of how things are going and report up to their investors um, who are called LPs. So all things related to equity in the private markets. And for those of our listeners who are, you know, nodding along saying, you know, thinking that they know of that and how ridiculously confusing equity can be, you know, versus our listeners who have no idea, have never gotten options or things like that. 
could you explain just like why this is so confusing and why if you're a CMO or, or just marketing leader or early employee of a startup, why it's really critical that something like Carta exists now? Because, you know, in the past, transparency wasn't always something that was was available. Yeah. I mean, equity compensation has, has you know, been really opaque. People haven't understood it. It's not quite as simple as salary where you can go to a friend who has a similar job and say, oh, I make you know, X amount and I make, you know, similar. Um, It's a little different than that because companies uh, have different amounts of options. Like an option at one company could be worth a dollar and an option at another company could be worth $15. You just don't know what you're comparing. So comparing your number of options isn't always helpful. Sometimes you can compare percent of ownership that you have. That's going to change over time. It matters a lot, like the the potential outcomes of the company. So percentage isn't even always valuable. So it's just not a really good way to compare. And you might not have all the details you need to know to figure out the, the current estimated value of what all your options would be worth or what it would be worth in the future because people don't know what questions to ask. So if you don't know what questions to ask when you're getting hired, companies are not really that forthcoming with the information that you need to properly calculate estimated returns on the amount of options that you're getting. So we do a lot at Carta, I think, both in our product for employees, as well as what we're trying to do on the marketing side, is really educate people how this works. Know what to ask for. Know, as someone on the HR side, what you should include in an offer to make this more fair. Know on the HR side how to issue out equity or, or develop a system for equity that's that's fair. We just put out a blog post about equity leveling, which is similar to salary leveling and putting people in bands and figuring out what their bands for equity are in addition to salary. And obviously these things aren't the most fun sounding, but it's really important because this is where so much of the wealth is created from jobs in tech and really just in our economy in general. It's massive amounts of wealth being created. So if you're working in in startups, it's important that you have at least a basic understanding of this stuff because you have to be proactive to kind of get what you're what you're worth and even know what you're worth in this in this space. So we're really trying to kind of demystify how it works or open up the black box. Well, and I think that there's just so much content out there on the internet that like is from non-practitioners. I think that that's one of the most critical pieces I've seen from like why Carta is super valuable. It's also just so boring. Like, (laughs) I mean, you know, obviously first and foremost, we want to put out factual information. And second of all, we want to make it a little more interesting, explain the larger context and, and at least make it a little more visual. So we actually just did a project on the design side where it was like, make all of these equity-related graphs look really, really great. <laughs> uh, and they do now. So, But we're just really trying to make it an easier read than some of the other stuff that's available. And I really what you're doing is is so important in today's tech economy and today's you know economy where you're building new businesses and equity is a component. It's to your point, it's not something you're going to learn in school. It's not something most financial advisors or accountants are going to be able to no, understand. I mean, they don't understand it because they haven't, unless they've spent time as an accountant at a startup, like they haven't gotten it before. No. And this is the thing that's the worst about it, in my opinion, is really getting money from equity or knowing when to exercise and knowing when to exercise, like what's going to happen to your taxes, all of that. It favors people that have already done this before. It yes. favors people who have been at a company that has gone public or have been at a company that's gotten acquired or been at a company that's done a secondary offering that's allowed you to exercise. So it's favoring people that have already made money from equity. So it's favoring the rich and mm-hmm. like so many systems. So it's already favoring people that don't know. So we're trying trying to help arm earlier employees or employees that haven't had that success at tech companies or haven't worked at tech companies to understand what's going on and also help companies do that for their employees as well and kind of level the playing field. And that's really why we're so invested in kind of adding transparency into this world of equity management. When we talk so much on this podcast about startups and yeah, obviously we're skewed a little bit just because we're you know based in Palo Alto and we're down here and a lot of our guests are from here. But I think it's really important. Like here, at least there's some amount of like you know water cooler talk. Yeah, you probably have a, have a friend who has gotten equity before. You have someone who you can ask. For the most part, people have someone who can ask. But one of the things we had talked about earlier was. There isn't, to your point, this apples to apples comparison. It's depending on the strike price, the stage, the funding amount, where they are, growth rate, depending on all of these different factors will dictate this is what a fair, quote unquote, fair, not fair offer is. And for the vast majority of people, you have no idea. And I know people who are earlier in their careers that are like, I'm so excited. I got 5,000 options. I was like, 
that could be worth $5,000. It could be worth $500,000. You don't know the context behind it. And it's so many people get hung up on the number of options they're getting, which honestly is the most arbitrary thing. It's really arbitrary. What our CEO often talks about is it's actually what people never talk about are what are the, what are the comparable companies? So what, Similar companies in a similar space are either public, where you can look at the current value of that company, or have had exits recently, or what potential outcomes do you see for this company? Because some companies are in a niche and are never going to be worth like $50 billion, and some are. So mm-hmm. that also depends a lot. So there's so many factors. There's there's that, just what market are you in? There's the strike price, like you said. There's the, the preferred price at their last round. So there's all mm-hmm. of these different things, and you can read about them on our blog. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not going to try to explain them all, but there's a lot of different pieces that you need to understand. But I think, you know, for, for CMOs, marketing leaders, you know, a huge critical component to this is, especially if you've never done it, is like, you got to do a lot of research. It's Mm -hmm. one of the most important things. And I think a lot of people get really caught up in like the startup theater and like the equity side of those things. And then they'll try to go, you know, high equity, low salary or these sort of like, you know, decisions that they're kind of like saying in their head or because, you know, whatever it is. And it's like you're working towards an outcome that's like not going to make you, you know, wealthy potentially when you could have just like got more salary for the last five years and made a lot more money. I prefer high equity and high salary. So. Yeah, I love when people actually give you those offers where they're like, you can pick from three salary options and three equity options. And I'm like, I want the highest on both. And <laughs> yes. now I know what your ceiling is. So I'm going to ask for both. And that's definitely what you should do. Yeah. <laughs> do not pick any of the options. Pick no. the highest of the options. Unless you're coming to work for me because I have a budget. No. <laughs> uh, no, always. <laughs> always negotiate. And actually, I think that it's something I think is so worth talking about is is negotiation, salary negotiation. And one of the things I have heard time and time again, and we've talked to sort of other people on other podcasts about this, is general negotiation tactics. And the generalization but truth is when women negotiate, we negotiate one round. When men negotiate, it's two to three rounds. And then you think about things like salary pay gap and equity pay gap. Mm -hmm. And I know you're doing a ton of work on gender gap and equity that I think is such important research and I think is so important for us to really talk to and sort of educate this generation. Yeah. So last year, right after I started at Carta, and we actually didn't have a marketing team when I started, we got started really late on marketing. So I came in when it was about 350 people and and started building out our team. And one of the first things I worked on, which might be considered a weird choice, but it kind of fell in our our lap and it was too good of an opportunity to do to pass up. And now it's just been so great because it put us on the map with, with press and with people from a brand perspective. So we partnered with Hashtag Angels, which is an investment collective of former Twitter executives who um, are all women who came to us and said, we've been looking for this data on the equity compensation gap. We know about the salary gap that's been broadly publicized, um, but nobody has the data that you have on equity. We have over 25% of venture-backed companies at the time were on Carta, so even more now. So we had more than a statistically significant sample to pull from and get the data on the gap in equity. It's 39 cents on the dollar for female employees, the current value of their equity. One quick interruption. Emily wanted us to issue a brief correction here. The study found that women employees receive 47 cents on the dollar in equity compared to men and women founders receive 39 cents on the dollar. This obviously doesn't affect the point she's making, but she wanted us to make sure that you heard the right numbers. Uh, Back to the show. And we're doing this again. We're we're doing the study again this year to try to get an update on it. And there's so much more we can do about around role, around tenure at startups. Um, we don't have uh, additional demographic information at this time, so we couldn't do that. But there's so much more we can do. But we put this out to really just say that this is a piece of the puzzle that's really important with compensation, and nobody talks about it. And it's the 39 cents on the dollar for equity is obscene. And it's if you obscene. think about... The this whole idea of wealth creation and working in tech, wealth creation comes from equity and women have enough trouble fighting for salary, knowing that the moment you walk in the door with equity, you're going to get 39 cents on the dollar. I mean, again, yeah. it's not roll by roll. It's or not roll by, by roll, time, but, it's, but yeah, it's a trend and it's not good yeah. uh, and it's not even close yeah. to equal. It comes from a few things. One, one is that founders are typically men. 
So we need more female founders. Mm-hmm. We also need more female investors. We yes. need more women investors. They'll invest in, in women and underrepresented minorities. And it kind of cascades from there. So it's obviously the problem of who are the founders. Founders hire people they know, people who are like them. It perpetuates the problem. The other problem is we don't have enough women in engineering. This is obviously a marketing podcast, but we don't have enough women in engineering. And engineers are typically the earliest employees, and they also are typically the highest paid and given the highest amounts of equity. So we need women founders. We need women in earlier positions. We need women in engineering roles because that's where equity is created at the beginning. And then later on in the company, it's really created at the executive level. And executives typically are also men and not women or other underrepresented minorities. So it stacks against us. But then this is why we really want to dive into role data. And we're trying to get better at having this data to really see within roles, is it is it equivalent and by tenure. But it's it's a huge problem. We have got to get more people in those roles and we have to be intentional about it from the start. Absolutely. I have um, a friend of mine and just thinking about that. And I, I love that you have the data. And then just sort of the, the anecdotal sides is I have a, a friend of mine who is who's a marketing executive and she went in, went to a public company Got, you know, the standard package, did a great job, went in and negotiated, got another $20,000 in her salary, got a 30% increase in equity, you know, feels like a solid yeah. negotiation. And then she goes Actually in. Actually negotiated, which is a big step. For exactly. <laughs> step one, negotiate. And when they come back and try to guilt you on, you know, you're already at the top of the band and we went over. No, they're lying. Because um, no one, no one starts at the top. And then went in a year later, hired someone at the same level as her, but to work for her. And the, the things about that is there are salary bands for everything. And it's rare you get to see your own salary yep. band. And she went in and because she hired someone at the same level on her team, she got to see her own salary band. And what she found out was even with the $20,000 negotiation yeah. and the you know end of year increase, yeah. she's at the bottom of the salary band. And then she sees the equity and the initial equity offer this guy was given was double her equity offer. So even though she went in and negotiated 30 percent more, this person who was reporting to her before he negotiated, before he did anything, was starting twice as high. I think this is one of the things there's there's two things there. One, when I started leading teams and hiring people, I started noticing firsthand how bad the problem was just because I would see women come in who gave their old salary and it would be so much less. And maybe it was true. Maybe it wasn't Mm -hmm. true, but they were asking for less and then they were getting less Mm because you ground on that. So don't tell people what you made before. Let the company give you a number before you give them a number. But you never need to give that. You don't need to give it. But people think they do and they don't realize that you don't have to say anything. Just say, I don't wish to share that. Let me know the band and I'll let you know if I'm in it. So don't give your don't give your requirements because you might be below where they're thinking of coming in. The next thing is ask the company. I mean, it depends on the stage. If you're joining a really early company, they might not have a, a, a system built out for equity compensation, but ask how they do compensation. Ask if they use bands, ask what their philosophy on it is. Those are questions that I don't think people think to ask, but you should ask. And if they don't have a system, then it's probably really unfair. And even if they do have a system, it might be unfair, but at least make sure they have a, above a certain size, 50 to 100 people. There should start to be a system in place for how they're thinking about this. Absolutely. And if someone's going in, and I know we have a lot of first-time marketing leaders, first-time CMOs on this or aspiring CMOs, when you're going in and you are going for a new role that's above what you've had before, part of it is do your research. But if you go in and you say, you know, I don't know what expectations are for this role, assume unless you work for the rare exception of a company that's like, they don't know what to expect. So let me make sure I deliver above and beyond versus they don't know what to expect. So... I have a budget. What's the minimum I can get away with? Right. And it's really, really do your research. And and the the friend of mine who ended up coming in far, far below on the equity side, what I will say that happened and worked out well was when she found out about this, she didn't say, I'm going to you know screw over the person that works for me because I've been slighted. She went in, this person still got a good salary, still got good equity. And then she went to her boss and said, by the way, here's the data, and this is where my equity is, and this is where his equity is. And I now have seen the bands, and I'm below everything. And I trust that you're going to fix this. Yeah, don't perpetuate the problem and affect other people's 
exactly. In, yeah, income in a negative way. Just go in and get it fixed get for yourself. It. Yeah, and I think it's a huge takeaway there that the person who wins the negotiation is always the most prepared. And if you yeah. can go into an organization, which presumably, you know, especially you're talking first time founders or even, you know, second time founders that didn't have an exit or a favorable exit, like they might not know what they're doing either. And it's like, if you can benchmark that information across, like using some of the tools that you have at Card on the blog and things like that, if you can figure out like, hey, this is what this company did, this is what this company did, this is why I think that this is where I should be, you're going to be better off than the person who's not prepared. Kind of last piece on, on the equity part. What would be your recommendation for someone who is going to be a first-time CMO or, or head of marketing that is going into a role and how they should view equity. Because what's really tough is, number one, most companies are product-centric. So like marketing as a hire is kind of like an afterthought, or it's something that the founders might not really care about marketing, think that it's that necessary. So that's the first piece. And the second piece is you're betting on yourself in a huge way, potentially. And if you're controlling the revenue generation of the company, which is what marketing should be doing, you know, you have an opportunity to bet on yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think my advice for someone in that level is the same for anyone else. It's try to calculate. We're, we're about to post something also on our website on how to do this, but try to calculate out what you think the possible exit scenarios are and how much you'd get in those situations to compare your offers if you do have multiple or what you had before in your previous role and try to gather all that information possible, all the pieces we were talking about earlier that you need to know and just try to do some basic math and, and walk through that and make sure it feels good to you. I don't, there aren't like specific benchmarks you can use again because it's so different and we are trying to eventually put out benchmarking data as well. But at the end, it has to feel comfortable to you and comfortable for where you where you think you're at and, and presumably more than you were making in your last role if you're taking on more. I think also, again, like the more senior you are, the more you can ask for things. Like I want to understand how you do bands. I want to understand or levels. I want to understand your process for equity compensation. I want to understand your process for refresh grants. This is really important. Some companies do refresh grants based on performance where they give you a new equity grant and some companies don't. So understanding how often they do that is really important because if you do do really well and kind of knock it out of the park, you want to have that that leverage point. Yep. So make sure they do refresh grants. There's also other things to look for that are maybe just as important as how much you get. How long do you have after you leave to exercise your options? How close are they to exiting? Would they ever IPO or get acquired? A lot of us, I think, have worked at companies like that where you're like, they're not that motivated to do that. And I'm really motivated for an exit. If that's the case, then maybe it's not the company for you. Like totally. know the time horizon that the the founders are expecting. And I think those are all fair things to ask when you're coming in at an executive level. You know, you can't really diversify your portfolio of where you work. Like you're committing to someone where for for that long. Yeah. So make sure it's make sure you have all the answers to the questions and just don't be afraid to ask them. I don't think you'll I think people when they ask about equity, or at least my friends that ask me to help them ask about equity, they're afraid of sounding stupid, especially women or women who aren't in finance or, or things like that, marketers. You're not going to sound stupid. Nobody understands this stuff. Yeah. And you also, a lot of times I find with similar people is they, you're afraid of sounding pushy or like you're just in it for the money. And that's, and you're like, no, you're not pushy. You're not just in it for the money. But let's be clear. We all work for money. That's, yeah. th this is why you're we're here. A little bit. Hopefully you like the mission of the company yeah. and what you're doing and all of that. But that's a big piece of it. And money doesn't <laughs> need to be. Money isn't everything. But there's nothing wrong with being financially prepared and having questions like, so when do you expect a liquidity event? Yep. That doesn't mean I'm only here for the money. It doesn't mean I'm only here for an exit. Because if you say there's not going to be a liquidity event for 10 years, well, that's great. Then I'm sitting on a bunch of equity that's not going to be worth anything for 10 years and say I'm here for five. The other the other big thing related to that that we find that people don't talk about is if they do secondary offerings. So there's mm -hmm. something called a tender offer where companies can buy back some of your options. Um, typically after a round, we, we help with tender offers here. We think this is a huge employee perk to do tender offers. We do them roughly every year at Carta. It's not every year, but it's as often as we can to give people liquidity prior to mm -hmm. an exit. And we don't know why more companies that do this don't talk about it and don't talk about it as a perk because that's a huge one. Um, if you know that you obviously have to invest in exercise, but if you know that you'll have an opportunity for liquidity every year, every two years, that's a huge advantage over companies that don't do that. So that's, I would take less equity knowing that a company is going to do that versus take more at a company that isn't 
even thinking about an exit for five to 10 years. Yeah. It's almost like thinking about buying a stock that gives you a dividend yep. versus yep. buying a, a stock that you're just going to buy and hold for a long time. Exactly. Go me. Look at that. Then, out of nowhere. Know where that idea came from. <laughs> um, all right, let's let's shift gears into driving startup growth. Yeah. You have built multiple teams from the ground up. I'm just curious, like, what is your process or playbook that you look at when building a team from scratch? Yeah, well, I have a rule not to use playbooks, first off. Um, the only rule is no there rules. are no rules. No, kind of. I guess it's uh, don't blindly follow a playbook. No, I actually have a – we have, like, a set of marketing principles, like, things that we do. And the one is, like, be wary of playbooks. Yeah. I used to say no playbooks, and they were like, you're just being dramatic. And I was, but, yeah, be wary of playbooks. But really, when when building out a marketing team, I think so much – and I, I have been the first marketer a few times now. And there's some similarities between the people that I've hired first, but it really depends on the company. I think when you are thinking about building out a marketing team or hiring marketers, you really have to look both internally at the company itself and externally at – competitors in your space and what's going on um, and how people are finding your product. So starting externally, are people finding this product by searching? Are they finding this product mainly just through referrals or recommendations from other people? Are they finding it when they're signing up for something else? Like Figure out how people are going to get to you and how your earliest users found your product and mimic that. And then similarly, looking internally for what can your company be good at also externally, like what are competitors doing? You don't want to do the exact same thing. It's hard to beat people who have gotten a head start at their own game, usually. But back to looking internally, it's just, do you already have someone on the team or in the company that's a really great writer that wants to be writing great content? Do you have someone um, on the data team who's really great at analytics and can help you there? Is there a product growth team already? So really looking with who you have already in the company, even if you're the only marketer, there might be other people in the company that can help. A lot of our early content was written by non-marketers because we didn't have a marketing team here. So once you get this assessment of kind of what you can be good at internally, what you need to be good at externally to start to grow, then I think you can make a better decision on who you need to hire. But you can't just blindly make a hiring decision without kind of doing those things. So then the next thing I do is there's kind of like, you know, three big roles that you'd think about hiring first. There's a content marketer, a product marketer, a growth marketer, demand gen person. And I think people have different opinions on who you hire first. My answer is it depends on the answers to those other questions and what you're good at as as the marketing lead. But really for me, I'm looking at I'm looking for a generalist at the beginning, typically, that index is high in one of those areas or wants to move into one of those areas in the future because inevitably they're not going to be able to stay a generalist forever. So they have to have some interest in specializing in one of those things. And I've I've done it different ways. Like I've the first person I hired here was a referral from someone else here, and she leaned towards product marketing and, and was a great generalist. And we were later in the game. We really needed help with messaging and positioning and, and supporting sales, so it made a lot of sense. I was at an early-stage startup before this, and first person I hired was a growth marketer because we just really needed to get people trying the product to see if we had product market fit, so totally different situation. He actually works, again, for me here, so he was like my fifth hire, so that was an easy one. So yeah, it, it, it depends on what you have going on, what your competitors are doing, and your audience. But really, like you want scrappy, great people at the beginning that can wear a lot of hats and jump in and do a lot of things, and that changes pretty quickly on, I think, what you're looking for there and what you're looking for later. What about focus versus kind of serendipity. We talk a lot about on the show how like you need to be open to serendipity, but you also have potentially a leadership team or a board that is like, hey, we finally have marketing. Like, let's do all of this. Yeah, two things on that. One, I'm really big into the serendipity at the beginning because I think you should hire really great people and not be so stuck on job descriptions. You're just going to limit yourself if you're like, you need to check all of these boxes. I think most people I've hired in my career have not fit a job description exactly because marketing is there's so many different roles there's so many different ways to shape a team. Actually we were we were updating our marketing levels back to the equity point and we just did like our first pass of just the the number of positions both functional with with levels or, or roles or you know manager director, those kinds of things. There were 44, and that was just a quick, like, 10-minute step. Like, mm -hmm. 44 different roles in marketing. So there's lots of ways to do it. So if you get too narrow in thinking about what you're looking for, you're going to miss the best people. So a lot of serendipity in early hiring. As you move later in the game, like, you have to be a little more specific because you're filling in gaps around people. But still then, like, I'll always take 
a referral who I think is really smart and can add value, even though if I'm not exactly sure what I'll do with them. I mean, this is, again, I'm growing a team really quickly at Carta because we got such a late uh, start at marketing. So I can do that a little bit more than a place where you're hiring like one to two people every six months. So kind of depends on that too. And then I think your other question, so it was about serendipity versus focus. And then your other question, remind me. So basically, you know, like your your board or your CEO oh, and all yeah. those folks. That's what I was saying about looking internally and externally. People have a very specific idea of what marketing is people who aren't marketers. They think it's like one part of marketing usually. So other executives or founders, they'll think it's just PR or just advertising or just email marketing or I don't know, just building a website. People have different ideas of what it is, paid search. It's funny, you'll hear it because people will be like, oh, the advertising team or the PR team. Yeah. No, mm-hmm. that's not, it's it's all of those things and more. Brand um, team. But mm-hmm. you, yeah, the brand team or we need a brand marketer. I'm like, I don't even know what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think- you want to know what the board and the founders expect of a marketer. Like if, if their mind, it's PR, then you better make sure you check the PR box in some way. It doesn't mean that you're just building a PR engine. Do the other things too and prove them wrong, that marketing's not just PR. But you've got to cater a little bit. I, if someone just thinks marketing is PR, I wouldn't go like hire five people on the growth marketing side and then expect the board and executive team to be happy with you. Unless you feel really comfortable explaining why that's why that's not the right move. There's usually probably a good reason why they think that's right and maybe get to the bottom of that as well. Like, why do you think PR is the way to go right now versus anything else? But yeah, I would say uh, make sure you know what the founder thinks marketing is. Yeah, it's a really important point. We reference the episode that we did with Jennifer Johnson, the CMO at Tenable, about how she sat down the leadership team. It was like, explain what our customers think of our product. Like, explain what our company does. And kind of like got that same pageism of like, hey, it turns out we're not kind of all on the same page. Yeah. Like, but like that's another question there is like, explain what you think marketing does. Yeah. Because- one of my, yeah, that's one of my favorite questions is what do you think? Yeah. What do you think marketing does? And especially even when you're interviewing people, uh, especially product marketers, because it means really different things. What is product marketing? ask a product marketing candidate because not to put them on the spot and have them state the job description, but what they think it might be or what they've been doing might be totally different than your expectation. So it's just really good to expectation set in something like marketing where it's, I don't know, a little more confusing what, what marketers actually do. Lauren, question for you. When you were hiring in kind of that same sort of vein as you were hiring for positions and then going to leadership and explaining why we needed those positions. Like, what what is that conversation like when you're like, hey, we need to hire four more product marketers? And then they're like, why? What, what's the justification for headcount? It's a great question. I Honestly, it depends on what the headcount is. And the things that I found are leadership tends to fund the things that they can see mm. and not the things they can't see. So... A lot of times they'll say, okay, our, our messaging isn't great. I need a bunch more product marketers. I need 10 product marketers. And I could sit there and go. They always think they need more product marketers. You always, usually do, but they always think that. They always think you need more product <laughs> marketers. You usually do, but not usually as many as they think. Yeah. And it's like, we don't need 10 product marketers. We I actually have really do need product marketers at Carter right now, though. <laughs> so <laughs> really for everyone, listening. if you're listening. If you're listening and you're a product marketer. <laughs> That's the main thing we need. The company's awesome. Yeah, email team at marketingtrends.com. We'll get it to Emily. And um, the thing that I have found is the last to get funded and done are things like operations Mm -hmm. and websites. And I remember having these conversations of like, you already have someone who who works on the website. Why do you need more? And you sit there. People and you always go, forget about the website. I'm like, you basically need a website PM. Like, who do you think's managing this thing? You've got like seven product PMs, but this is a whole product in and of itself. Completely. We, we just we just did an entire episode with uh, the CMO Sitecore about this exact thing because I, it's wild. And you're talking about like the complexity of modern mm-hmm. websites is off the charts. And yeah. you're like, that's one of the first people I hire on the growth side, and people don't even think of it. It's just so like a website PM. Yeah. I don't know. And it's you need they the website. They do SEO, PM. conversion rate optimization, landing pages, and they project manage all the things that need to happen for it. And you have that. And then you say, okay, now we have the website in nine languages. And they're like, well, why do you need another one? You already have one. And you're like, well, we have the one person times nine. Yeah. And What's the ROI on that, though? Like, that's the, it's like, yeah. that's the question, right? And you're like, are you kidding? Like, the ROI is that our website looks horrible. I have a I have a secret, especially at a small growing company, just call everyone on the growth marketing side a growth marketing manager or a growth marketing specialist mm. because then you can just tell the, <laughs> this is kind of lying, but you can be like, oh, they're going to work on ads and some other things and people 
see like ROI on ads. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's the ads. It's the uh, ads, yes. And some other growth things. And then they're like, okay. They're working <laughs> on optimization. That's not yeah. a good one. Yeah, optimization. Yeah. Everybody gonna, wants growth. Everybody wants yeah, to be awesome. Yeah, no, but, and that's helpful also because you could just move people around to different roles. But keep it vague if you can. <laughs> Completely. That's a, it's, it's actually a really, really good insight because I think that a lot of times like, also it helps them in their career, mm-hmm. right? Because it's like, oh, yeah. go keyword stuff your thing. Just say like, you know, I was a growth marketer manager like in parentheses whatever job down the road that you're looking for yeah, just most most of the people on my growth marketing team are like growth marketing manager comma websites or something yep. like yes. that except I guess the exception is are people focused on on ads um, or email but I'm, I really leave it up to them I mean I worked at Asana for four years we didn't really do normal titles so I'm bad at it I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, whatever you want it to be we use Asana. but here's yeah here but here's what you're going to be working on but yeah we we tend to have people that are just growth marketing managers it's good for them it's Makes it easy case for us. I don't have to explain what everybody's doing to everybody else. <laughs> no, it's great. And I think just a lot of times it, you just really can't, especially in startup world, like growth is is kind of the thing that everyone talks about. Mm-hmm. If you're in a company that's like not exactly like that, you know, it might be a little different. And I think, you know, the term growth marketing is kind of like become its own, like this means 50 things to, yeah. different, mm-hmm. to 50 different people. But really what you're concerned with is does your leadership understand what these terms are? Yeah. Do um, they understand what part of the business they're focused on or what they're going to, what metric they're trying to drive in general? And then internally, like obviously do people on the team know what everybody else does? And that's really what you're, and you want to be helping people's careers. So I guess that's how you kind of think about titles. And I definitely get a lot of, we'll just make the business case. What's the business case? And the thing that actually a zillion years ago when I was at Salesforce and I was trying to hire people on my team, the how I made the business case was, what are the priorities of the company right now? What is the company trying to accomplish? Oddly enough, the headcount that I'm looking to hire is directly aligned with one of your top business goals. You are trying to like deepen partnerships. Funny story. My headcount is all about deepening partnerships. I think that I've just been really lucky because I've actually never had. I think there might be two reasons for this. I've never had to like fight for more headcount. Mm -hmm. I mean, a little bit at the beginning of the year. But then I think if you hire really great people and you hire methodically and slowly, which is I don't hire super slowly, but I am really careful about who I hire, especially at the beginning of building teams, because I want them to earn the respect of the organization. If you have a really high-functioning, high-performing team that people respect, I think it's much easier to ask for what you want, Mm -hmm. because it just shows that you're not, or if your team's not overly bloated and it's just like you're keeping the team lean, I think people will notice. They will notice the quality of your team, and they'll trust you on the hiring and headcount side. So that's where I try to get to pretty quickly and why I think it's so important. The first people you hire, whether you're first marketer coming into an existing team, Mm -hmm. really focus on getting the right people in at the beginning. There might be pressure to do it fast, but take the extra whatever amount of time and get really good people at the beginning because it's going to set the tone for how people approach your team, how people approach you on, on things like hiring plans. I want to touch on, you know, one of the most difficult jobs, I think, in the startup world is like those entry level startup sales reps because they're talking about a product that like, doesn't have product I'm market here to say fit. I could never do cold calling. Yeah, I've never a, done it. And I feel kind of guilty about that because so many rough. people have had to do it. I can't do it. Yeah, so I've had to do it. Uh, here to say, never done it. Respect. Well, the thing that cold Scary. calling does is it teaches you how dumb cold calling is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> that's that's my It also rule. teaches you to have like no fear, which. No, no, it's great. I mean, but it also you're like, no, there is a better way. <laughs> yeah, um, there definitely But is. And it's like, and marketing probably has the solution to it. P- big plug for drift. It's drift. That's the better way. The online chat. Yeah. Um, and they've got this great new product where you can use video so the sales reps can send recorded video message to prospects, which is like the sales rep. I didn't know talking. about that, but I'm going to talk it to is my awesome. drift people yeah. after this. Well, so and this is a perfect segue into how do you empower sales early on? Because partnering with the head of sales is obviously extremely critical and they're presumably going to be there for a little while. But you also have this this like bubble up from sales reps that are like in there, you know, doing hand to hand combat with super confusing conversations that are bubbling up some like great ideas and some like horrible ones potentially. So how did you kind of like in early days make that relationship with sales where you they know you have your back? Yeah. I mean, truth be told, we're, we're still working on it. So sales, this was, Cardo was an interesting situation. Um, like I said, we started marketing really late. So the sales team was really big when I got here and they were having to do some things that were marketing-y, like yeah. a lot of their own email marketing and a lot of their own collateral, et cetera. So obviously we, we wanted to help them with those things right away, but there's still, 
a year and a half later, even though the marketing team's now 20, there's still some some habit breaking there. Like, we can help you with that. So trying to let them know what we can help them with, which is different. Normally, the teams are kind of scaling together, mm-hmm. which was more my experience at Asana. And that, honestly, is a little bit easier to keep a strong relationship because you're kind of going person by person yeah. instead of trying to go to a whole team that already exists. So the card is unusual, so I won't even really use that as my base case. I think the main thing here, there's, there's two things that I think are really helpful. One is a lot of people on sales, or, or it's a common career path that I've seen that people on sales want to move to marketing or they're just tired of doing sales or at least they want to break. There's usually a couple of people that want to do that. If people want to switch teams from sales to marketing, it might seem like, oh, they don't have marketing skills. They do. Bring them over. Like That's the best internal move you can make is taking from one, someone from sales who's been talking to customers and selling it and moving to marketing. It doesn't matter what role. Just move them into marketing and train them on that. The knowledge that they'll have from selling will be so beneficial to your team. And they'll have relationships with the sales team. So if you can move someone without like ruffling any feathers, if you can find someone, especially at like the SDR or BDR level who's just getting into the company and move them into marketing, it's really valuable. I have two people on my team, one that was an SDR, which is a more common path, and one that had been an AE for a while and just didn't want the you know monthly grind to hit the commission. No, she works really hard. But uh, she wanted wanted to get into something else, and that has been super valuable in building that relation, those relationships. As someone who's um, done that, I can attest. The other piece about it that I think is really critical is that you start to develop your the other marketers on your team are like, oh, it's actually not that scary to like go talk to prospects. And yeah. like, it's like, hey, you know, we should do some more ride-alongs. Or like, hey, that mm. that salesperson was like, yeah, marketing never came on a ride-along with me in a year. And like, that's kind of a bummer because yeah. it would be nice to have someone sit along with me or whatever. And it's, it's just, I, it's, I think it just really builds bridges. And then obviously, you know, as a leader, you want to develop relationships with the sales leader as well. But I actually think it, the whole team needs to be doing it. And so it's how can you make those those connection points. But it's, I mean, it's really hard. That's one of the hardest things about being a marketing leader is building out those strong relationships with sales and product. And it's hard and it's a challenge. And the best thing I've seen for it, honestly, is switching people on teams that want to move and like allowing for internal transfers. It's just, it helps so much. Now that you're working with completely different buying profiles, yeah. how do you go from that hey, we're focused on one exact vertical and now we're shifting to a completely different persona, a type of yep. buyer, a need, like a, the neediness level is totally different. Going from startups to VCs is like the, you know. Yeah, there's, I mean, they, you know, they talk to each other all the time, early stage founders and VCs, but it's pretty different how they, how they buy, how they think about things, how we need to approach them. Their lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's hard to reach VCs this week, for instance, uh, in July. Yeah. Um, uh, Startup founders are all working. It's funny. I don't know. Yeah, they just keep on working. Um, No, I think one thing that when I first started, I was like, wow, we have all these different audiences and we're just the sales. And some are sort of nascent products to nascent audiences for us to be reaching. And some are way more developed, like our cap table product, which was the first thing we built. Sales team's huge and we've been selling to them for a while. It was really like, let's get a handle on all of our audiences. Let's like identify them as audiences, which hadn't necessarily been done without marketing. And then we've got to figure out not only what is the positioning and messaging for these audiences, but also what are the growth tactics? And they're not going to be the same. So we're building out we're doing a bunch of work around account-based marketing right now for VCs. There's only, there's, I don't know, it depends on who you ask, but there's roughly 4,000 VC firms in the U.S. And so it's really small. So you have to get that experience right. You can't just hit them up all the time and expect them to like you. Like mm-hmm. you really need to be intentional about your communication strategy. And that's just definitely more of an account-based marketing approach. Early stage companies, there's a lot more of them. They want it to be fast. They've got a million things to do. Issuing equity is something they have to do, but they don't want to think about. They often actually outsource it to their lawyer, so they want to make a quick decision. So we need to make it fast for them to purchase things. So that's where things like Drift come in and just getting them in touch quickly. And that's a really fast sales cycle, which is really different from VC's buying cycle. So we just kind of had to recognize what the differences were and then talk to sales about that and work with them on the different processes. So like we kind of have three or four different marketing motions going on within our team. And it was just a matter of really identifying those and then, you know, making sure people actually really what we ended up doing is we'd ended up dividing up marketers by audience. So they that's have what, an that's audience. what I was going to ask. Yeah. That's going to be my next question. Yeah. Yeah. So what we're doing right now is we're really thinking about as the team scales, splitting the team up a little bit by audience, not splitting them up into where it's like a business unit structure. We actually had a business unit structure at Cardo for a while and now we don't. But 
having people be, you know, pretty focused on their audience because the the buying process is so different. So product marketers will be focused by audience, which makes a lot of sense, but so will our growth marketers on like the email side and things like that. We might actually have like a growth lead for each audience as well, but so want to be able to be as nimble as possible because sometimes there's something launching for one audience and nothing for the other. So you need people to still be nimble. So it's almost like people will have a specialty and then maybe they'll have like a side hustle, but um, unclear exactly how we're going to do it. But now that we're 20 approaching 30, it's time to get kind of that specific back to our conversations earlier just about like how does a team change over time or how does hiring change over the time we're we're getting to the point where things are a little bit more focused and who we need to hire like there's still some gaps but as the year progresses because we're hiring really fast to catch up on the marketing side things will get more specific and we'll get more structure whereas some of the structure has been a little looser and kind of we identify projects quarterly and people kind of move around it will have to get a little more solidified just so it's not pure chaos. So well and I think yeah that fine line and balance between like giving people ownership and autonomy to be able to like, hey, you own this, make this great, versus we're a team and like the team wins together sort Mm -hmm. of a thing. But at the same time, like you want people to be able to like Yeah, another way I think about it, especially on the growth or digital marketing side, is just people usually have a channel specialty, like something they're really good at, whether that be, you know, email ads, some people are getting really good at doing things in product, things like that, the website. But it's also nice for them to also own, say, like an audience. So like you own this audience and you're responsible for, I mean, this is at sort of more senior levels, manager, senior manager level, but you're responsible for this audience and coming up with campaigns and things for that audience. And you're also the expert in this channel. So kind of having two things that you're kind of responsible for, one that's audience specific or vertical specific and one that's... uh, kind of channel specific. So that's another way I've done it. Do you have certain things that you say, this has to come to me for approval versus stuff that where you just give autonomy people to do what they do? Yeah. So it used to be kind of a lot more informal, but again, once the team starts scaling, probably should have done this at around 15, but we went from 15 to 19 in six weeks. So I, I, haven't done it. It's on my top of my to-do list is to put in that process that you need when it's like, here are the review tiers, which I hate adding process like that, but the team is like starving for it. It just just starts to seem so hierarchical, but it's really necessary because some things do need to come to me and some things definitely do not. We have a rule that everything that goes out has to be reviewed by someone else. Even if that's just like a social media post, we have a Slack channel, like our social marketing channel, and there's a bunch of people in there and just someone has to read it just to avoid, unless it's super urgent. Social is probably a bad example. Sometimes it's urgent, but someone has to read it and just get another set of eyes on it. So that's a rule, but that can be a peer in a lot of cases. And then in some cases it's a specific person or a specific manager. And then in some cases it's me and I'm trying to get, get the number of things that are me down to a, down to a minimum, but there's still things. Um, so, you know, things that I think are going to get a lot of attention or a lot of eyes and are harder to change. Like once you send out an email blast, like you can't take it back. So yep. I kind of want to see those, a blog post, if I see it a day after it's published and have some minor changes, that's fine. So it kind of just depends on the thing. But yeah, we're working out that that process and we're documenting it in Asana because that's where all things like that should go. Yeah, hey, Still a very loyal Asana user. Hey, we are too. Three years after leaving. Hey, couldn't do marketing without it. So we... um. We use uh, we use Asana, same sort of thing. Get the, I get those ping notifications of like for review. Yep, doing review processes in Asana is really great. Just assigning a subtask to someone, it really works well. Okay, let's get into lightning rounds. These questions are fast and easy. I'm just, ready. Just like I don't know if you should talk about lightning when we're up this high in a building though, and I'm <laughs> terrified of heights. So. Touche. The thought of lightning coming down right now. Whew. Well, it's because these or questions. Any natural disaster. Knock on wood. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> fortunately, uh, San Francisco's never been hit by a giant earthquake or uh, <laughs> or fire uh, in the past hundred years. Um, it was over a hundred years ago. These questions are fast and easy, just like marketing automation with Pardot. You can go to pardot.com/podcast to learn more about B two B marketing on the world's number one CRM. Fast and easy questions. Emily, are you ready? I'm ready. Number one: What app are you using on your phone that's the most fun? That's the most fun? Oh, God, I might need to have more fun. Um, That's why we asked the question. I, can I, I got to look at my yeah, phone, my very broken screen that I really need to get fixed. <laughs> what is the app I'm using? That, so I, I banned playing games a long time ago. I did too, and I just started playing games. Sorry. And I feel I feel good about that decision, but now you're asking me this question, and I feel 
like I don't have anything fun on here. You know, this is really lame, but I actually just love the Robinhood app because I'm so Ooh. much more into and and this is like pre-Cardo too. I'm just so much more into investing in stocks than I ever was before because it's just such a delightful experience and yeah. like fun to watch how things go up and down. So that's one of my like board on my phone, go check, maybe like buy something. I don't know. Maybe I have a future life as a day trader. Um, <laughs> and then I'm just still like a Twitter person. Like I check Twitter all the time. These aren't particularly fun. None of these are new. Lately, I've been using my WAG dog walking app a lot because my dog walker was out of town. And that app is pretty crazy because it like literally tells you where your dog goes to the bathroom. So I'll be at work and it'll be like Tenny peed. <laughs> that's, <laughs> and that's pretty, that's pretty funny. My, my <laughs> mother and father would love to, uh, we get the, I get incessant text messages of has chili pooped. So yeah, uh, I, no, they need to use WAG because it just tells you. There you go. Um, those aren't very, I, that makes me sound way more boring than I am, but you know, those are, those are the apps. What is your favorite vacation spot? Well, I try to I try not to have a favorite vacation spot because I try to go on vacation to different places. So I'll just tell you where I went most recently. So last month or two months ago, I don't know, recently, I went to Amsterdam and Berlin. Mm. And both were great. I had never been to either. Amsterdam's like such a livable city. I loved like biking around canals. And then Berlin was fun too. I like, you know, beer and all those things and history. So it was great. So that's my most recent uh, vacation spot. Also, beer in history with with Emily. Beer in history. That, that's that's a show. Drunk history. I also got a tattoo in a beer garden on a whim. So that's always that's always fun. See, I am fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I swear. I swear. <laughs> what ad campaign have you seen recently that you were envious of? So I drive to work from over the bridge and on the freeway. So I see a lot of outdoor campaigns on my way to work. Which bridge? Uh, the Bay Bridge. Me too. Yeah, it's a joy. Anyway, so I uh, see a lot of outdoor ads, a lot of billboards. A lot of them are pretty terrible. I've actually been impressed by Zendesk lately. Um, I just think their their billboards have been pretty fun. There's one with like balloons right now, but they've been doing all sorts of things. They're often pretty punny, but not in an annoying way. And they're just doing a really good job, I think, of explaining that they're not just help desk stuff anymore, not just support. And when they originally did their rebrand, I wasn't. I was like, okay, whatever. It's like shapes and a Z, but I've really liked some of the the creative the creative executions that have come out of it, and they've just been the things that have been popping out the most for me. Yeah, so I'll stick with that. What book or podcast have you read or listened to recently that you enjoyed? I've been off my podcast kick. I used to drive to Palo Alto, and I listened to way too many true crime podcasts, and I used to be like <laughs> checking my trunk every time I got in my car. So, like, not even joking. So, I stopped that. Um, I think that the best book I've read, well, actually, I just read Flash Boys because I had to for work, but it was really enjoyable. It's <laughs> a little late to the game, but Flash Boys was interesting if you're trying to learn more about how markets work, which I always am because I work at Carta. The book I liked the most that I read this year, which was a little late to the the party on this, but it was a book called Educated by Tara Westover. I think that's her name. But it was about someone who grew up without a formal education in a pretty rough home and and kind of came back from that. So it's just a really like empowering memoir and really, really crazy stuff happened to this person and really kind of like picked herself up and just reminds you of kind of the the privilege that you do have if you if you are that lucky and to take advantage of it. And you never know what people's story is. So be nice to people. <laughs> that's, that's great advice. Yeah. Uh, what are you most excited about for the future marketing? So I love when things can be automated in a way that feels human. So I love like what's happening with, we talked about Drift, but I love that. I love like personalization of landing pages that's happening in like a non-creepy way. But I think people want to get the products and tools that they need quickly and they don't really want to be bombarded with marketing and they want to, you know, come in, know what the product is going to offer them and then make a decision and not necessarily have to get on the phone with someone in sales. And so as much as we can target great content that really adds value to the right people and then help them make a decision quickly, like that's what I think marketing should be doing. And I think there's a lot of interesting technology out there right now. One of my friends started a company called Mutiny and they're doing web personalization. And that's really interesting just being able to, it's like crazy landing page customization. Great name. Yeah, like you, you remember it. Yeah, so we haven't started using it yet. We're about to start using it. But yeah, it's a really cool company. Um, so things like that, personalization, chat, those kinds of things. Still excited about those. What's your best advice for a first-time head of marketing? Yeah, I think I have 
two or three things. The first thing is build relationships with sales and product as early as you can. That's B2B. It's a little different in consumer, more product probably than sales in that case. But yeah, so for B2B, build relationships with sales and product really early. Make sure you get those right. I think the other thing I mentioned already, which is hire great, really smart people who are willing to do a bunch of work and don't really have a ceiling and be more focused on that than someone who's really great or maybe even has a ton of experience in a role. And then the other thing that I always, that I tell my team in marketing, I mentioned earlier, one of my principles around being wary of playbooks. My biggest thing that I tell people is to always add value with every interaction. So like, don't send out something that doesn't add value, even an email. Put a link to something that people would find valuable, even if it's not our content. Like, Always try to add value in every interaction you have with a customer. Do not waste people's time. It's especially important since we're targeting VCs and startup founders, but it's important for everyone. I think it just will really help your brand grow in the long term if you just people have positive experiences and don't feel like you're wasting their time or spamming them. So add value. That's like my number one measure for how I review things is like, does this add value? And I think if more marketers acted that way, we'd have better brands with better content and we'd maybe non-marketers would be less annoyed with us marketers. I love um, that. So yeah, add Took value. that as a note. That's great. Yeah. And that's kind of what, you know, we're trying to do here and why back to, to, to close the loop, we were talking a lot about the gap table study that we did and how that was one of the first pieces of content that we did. And it was definitely a brand play and maybe not something you would normally do that early as a marketer, but it added so much value so quickly in terms of just setting the stage for what our brand was about and what we were going to do with content. So, yeah. Last question. Mm-hmm. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? Internally or externally or either or both. Your call, chef's choice. Internally, I feel like I never, not, not a lot of people ask me about like the story that we're trying to tell. Like, what are, what's the story we're trying to tell? What does our brand stand for? Like, those kinds of things. People are, you know, often focused on numbers or how we're helping sales or when we're launching the next thing. But it's not like, yeah, what story are we trying to tell? I don't know why. It, but that's just something people don't ask me. I don't know. I guess I want everyone to feel united in what our story is. So people here don't ask me that question a lot. And I think it's really important that marketing teams help shape the story of the company and, and the culture around that, too. And then externally... Well, I feel like people ask you what you do. This is just generally not just me. People ask you like what you do, but they don't actually really care what you do. (laughs) That's true. Um, true. So maybe we need a better question in the world of just instead of like, what do you do? Maybe it's like, what's an exciting thing you're working on right now? Or or what's something that you're doing that you think matters? Maybe that's the question. What's something you're doing that you think matters? What is something that you're doing now that matters? I really, I mean, really just this, this, I think this gender gap stuff really matters. I've gotten to speak on it a couple of times and just enlightening people that the gap in equity is bigger than that in salary and it's something we need to be focused on does, you know, cause a lot of conversation about how equity works in general. And it gives me ideas of content we can create to help people. And at least in my, in my current job, I think the the thing that's most important that I can do here is help demystify how equity works, whether that's for to help people that are minorities or whether that's just to help everyone in general, like both are important. Yeah. So we should ask people what they're doing that matters because some people might not ever think of it and maybe we can help them think about it. I love it. This has been absolutely awesome. Thanks so much for hanging out and inviting us to, to Carta HQ to the here. Tower. Yeah. To the tower. <laughs> um, any final stuff to plug? Uh, things to plug. Yeah, we are hiring lots of people here, especially product marketers, but that might change by the time, you know, this airs, but definitely hiring things I talked about. I talked about our gap table study. I talked about blog posts that we have, carta.com slash blog, pretty self-explanatory. Uh, I talked about my friend's company mutiny. She didn't tell me to, I just think it's cool. <laughs> uh, and I think that's it. Awesome. It's been great hanging out. We got to have you, uh, have you back soon. Thanks. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast or click on the link in our show notes.
you have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.